her mama. <laughs> good job. I don't know where she went. Good job. Good job. Hey, I'm glad you're here this morning. Let's take our Bible and let's go to Romans chapter 5, okay? Romans chapter 5, and we began last week talking on the subject of peace. And I think I mentioned to you, if I didn't, I was supposed to, so I will now. Many people go out looking for peace, but fail to find it because in their search, they fail to realize that peace is a product that's manufactured in heaven. It's not manufactured down here, you know. In fact, peace, I think I did mention to you that peace is a person. And I'll tell you what I found in my ministry, that many Christians today live with little or no peace because they fail to understand the theological significance of their relationship to Christ, which is the foundation of peace. And that's what I want to talk to you about this week and next week. To many Christians, they simply see salvation as a ticket to buy whatever they feel, whatever they want, whatever they deserve, or perhaps whatever they're entitled to. And that idea is reinforced in many churches today. And so what happens is churches become marketers trying to appease consumers looking for the ultimate fix. And the sad reality is that everything they're looking for, they're not going to find because they're looking in a wrong place to a wrong person or with a wrong mindset. And so we're going to be talking for the next couple of weeks on the theological significance of peace. And I want to tell you, there's something that blew me away in the text. I'm not sure I'll be able to get it out. I hope I can. But I want to tell you, if you can get your head around it, if you can somehow grab it, uh, it will change your life, okay? Last week when we started, we, we began in Colossians chapter 3. I want to take a moment of review. Uh, we began in Colossians chapter 3. Actually, we started at the end, and I kind of gave you some practical advice for handling peace in a, in a hurting world. I said to you last week, the first thing that has to happen, there has to be the peace of Christ that umpires your heart. And I have to tell you, that's not easy. Okay, uh, as Don mentioned to you, our search team's back on tap and starting all over again. And I want to tell you again, here I am in the middle of preaching on peace, and here I am trying to share with you biblical scriptures and all those kind of things, and my peace got rocked this week. And so I had to shift from my emotions. I had to shift from my thinking to scripture, and, uh, and I began to realize that Christ has got to be the one who plays the umpire in this search for peace. Number two, the word of Christ must be at home in your life. You can have peace if you're not consistently, faithfully, and persistently, I might add, in the Word of God. And then number three, I mentioned to you that the name of Christ must control your life. I mentioned to you last week that uh, He must fill you up. When you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit, the Bible tells us, okay? Well, let me tell you what I want to do for the next couple of weeks. We're going to get in the starting block. And I want to talk to you, as I mentioned to you, a peace from a theological perspective. Because if you don't understand God's peace to you in a justification perspective, in a salvation perspective, then you're really never going to have peace in the practical arena of your life. Now, if you've been with us over the last, uh, I don't know, several months, we've kind of been walking through Romans chapter 4. And let me tell you, that leads into chapter 5 where we're going to be for the next two weeks. In Romans chapter 4, Paul deals with the 
beautiful doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, what he's done in the first three chapters, he outlines the complete universal ruin by man into sin. And then chapter 4 is this wonderful idea, this wonderful biblical truth of justification by faith. Now, sometimes we'll call that salvation, but, there, but, the, but it's more than that. Justification is a legal declaration from God that those who have been chosen by him are considered not guilty. We looked at Abraham, and through Abraham's example, we realized that God deposited righteousness into our account. Then we looked at David, and from David's example, we realized that God did not deposit our unrighteousness into our account. We get his righteousness, and because of Christ, our substitute, we don't get our sinfulness, okay? Now, Gang, that's more than just a theological statement for your head. It's a factual truth that has practical implications on how you live and how you live correctly. Paul wants us to understand the implications. And so what we're going to do in chapter 5 is answer some questions or attempt to. Chapter 5 is actually just a chapter of so what. If we are justified by faith alone, so what? What does that actually mean for me? What is the result or the results of God declaring me not guilty? That's what I want to attempt to tackle this week and next. I want you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I know you've been up a lot, but we want to stand in honor of God's word. I want us to read verses 1 through 11 of Romans 5. We're actually going to deal this morning in the first three verses, so after I read and we pray, kind of keep your concentration there, okay? Therefore, by the way, anytime you see the word therefore, it's generally a summary. He has made some kind of marvelous statements, all of chapter 4. And then when he comes to chapter 5, he simply says, therefore, which is the result, okay? Therefore, having been justified by faith, number one, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also, this is number two, we have obtained our introduction. Your Bible translation may have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we also exalt in our tribulations, Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. If you didn't have tribulation in your life, gang, then you're not going to have hope in your life. And it's not easy, but it's required, okay? Verse 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You ought to put your name there. Christ died for Tom or Christ died for Don. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than 
having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received. And he uses that wonderful term of peace, reconciliation. Can I pray for us? Father, this morning, I pray you'll help me that I can uh, take, Lord, what you have laid on my heart, that, God, I can somehow translate that into victory for us, for me, that I can share the truths of it, that we can receive those truths, not just into our head, Father, but into our heart, to make us appreciate with gratitude what you've done and how you look at us through the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gang, thanks. Be seated, okay? Now, let me tell you what I, I just, as I begin to study out the chapter, Paul will not use this term, but in the grammar he uses and the way he presents some of the truths, the underlying theme here is the security of the believer. The way he writes it is this, that when you're declared justified, you'll always be justified. And when a person is justified, then the proof is going to be in their attitudes and their actions. Preservation by God, perseverance by the saints are two sides of the same coin. And so what he wants us to understand is now that we're justified, we don't have to worry about where our eternity is. We don't have to worry about our life and where we're at in life. Now, let me tell you how I want to handle the verses this morning. Two main headings. The first thing we're going to talk about is our standing before God. That's today. And then next week as we gather up, we're going to talk about our state before God. And let me just touch on that for a moment, okay? Because of Christ, our standing is perfect. And you need to understand that. Because of Christ, your standing is perfect. It is complete. It's immutable which means it never changes. Our standing is how God sees us through Christ. It's our, our position in Christ. In a sense, it's how we are up there. Aren't you glad that when God looks at you, he really doesn't see you, he sees his son in you. Well, that's our standing before God. It's complete. It's acceptable. It's in his eyes, perfect. And it's in that we stand knowing that we have his favor, that he loves us, that he accepts us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, our state is imperfect. In verse 3 and following, he begins to deal with that. Our state is imperfect. It's incomplete. It's progressive. It's where we are as believers in the flow of our experiences. 
It flows from experience to experience, challenge to challenge, trial to trial. As God gets us ready for eternity. Now that is our practice. And it's not perfect because God's got to knock away, chip away, sand away all the imperfections in our life to get us ready for glory. Now for some of you it's a sandpaper. For me it's a hammer and chisel, okay? All I know is that, that as God deals in my life, sometimes he has to take some harsher measures to get me ready to enter eternity, okay? Well, I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 5 with me. Because as we talk about the standing, he gives us three benefits or three results of our standing with him. And in verse 1, we find, first of all, peace with God. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. The peace that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5 has nothing to do with relationships. Paul's going to deal with that in the book of Philippians. It has nothing to do with interpersonal relationships, you with someone else, you and your spouse, you and your kids, or whatever, okay? The peace that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5 also has nothing to do with circumstances that you find in life. You've got to deal with people. And you've got to deal with circumstances. And we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. But in Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about our relationship with God. And he uses that wonderful term justified that he dealt with in chapter 4. And he uses it in a way that it's once and for all completed. It's there for assurance. It's there for security. You see, he wants us to realize that when we get Christ, the enmity between God and man is reconciled. He says we have peace with God. One of the, there's a lot of reasons I'm a Baptist, gang, okay? And there's a lot of reasons why I'm not a Pentecost or I'm not an assembly of God. And one of the main reasons is that I believe that when God, when you look at salvation from God's perspective, when God declares you not guilty, when God justifies you, it is a once and for all thing. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me being good to earn it or being bad to lose it. Salvation is all based upon God and what God does for those who repent, and for those who believe. And I don't know about you, but I need that in this world. I need that in the flow. I need that in this progressive um, flow of my life, getting me ready for eternity. I need to know, you need to know, that what God does and what God declares and what God gives can never be taken away. Now, if we look at it from our perspective, which we tend to do because we tend to be selfish, we tend to want what we want, we tend to be almost narcissistic at times. When we look at it from that perspective, then we can get this idea that we can lose by being bad and living bad. When we talk about someone getting saved, generally, here's what we do. We look at it from man's perspective. 
We get to go to heaven. Our sin has been removed. We've been forgiven. Jesus comes to live within us. Sometimes you'll hear people say, finally, I, I've, I found what I've been searching for. Some will say, well, you know, for the first time I found my, my purpose in life. And on and on we go from our perspective. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. And there's some truth to it. But that's not what Paul, in the perspective that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5. His emphasis is this, that God has peace toward us. Not that we were enemies of God. We were, and we understand that. But God was our enemy. And because of what he did through Jesus Christ, now he's no longer our enemy. He is our friend. He's accepted us in the beloved. Now, again, you got to get your head on that. Because you have to understand that God hates evil. And guess who's evil? We are. God is angry with the sinner every day. That's what the Bible says. In the Old Testament, the Bible says he will by no means clear the guilty. Turn a few pages back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Look at, look at this verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who is ungodly? Who is unrighteous? Man is. Gang, that means that you are. That means that I am. And the beauty of justification is that a holy, righteous God is reconciled to us, not so much us to him. You see, salvation is about the beauty of God, not about the benefits at man. God is at peace with us. God has accepted us. God favors us through Christ. His wrath has been removed toward us. So the question here is not, am I a friend with God? But is God a friend of mine? And when you begin to look at salvation from God's perspective, and the love of God is shed abroad in your heart, and you begin to realize that God does rule, and God does reign in my heart, all because he now accepts me as his friend. It changes my whole perspective. It gives me security to know that I can't mess up, I can't lose what he has declared, and what he has done in the giving of his very only begotten son for me. And it is through that biblical truth that Paul is trying to emphasize that now I have peace. I have peace from God because God accepts me. Now, I may have some issues with my spouse. I may have some issues with my staff, you know. I may have issues at jobs. I might have issues with friends from time to time. I may have issues with circumstances that come down this pike called life. I understand, and we'll deal with it, and you got to deal with that. 
But you can't deal with that until you first have peace with God from God's perspective. I don't know if that grabs you like it grabbed me this week. But I want to tell you, it floored me to think that God loves me. That now I'm a friend of God. That his favor is on me, not based on anything with me, but based upon who he is and what he has chosen to do. And I just sat in my office with everything going on this week in my life. I just sat in my office on Wednesday and Thursday and said, God, I'm thankful that even if the world is spinning sometimes out of control and things spinning sometimes that I can't quite get my head around, there's one thing I can die with, and that is that you find favor with me based upon your son. And let me tell you what I think. I think that many Christians don't quite get that. And that's why so many Christians are unhappy are not at peace. And when relationships and when circumstances begin to spin, then they just crash and burn. Peace with God. Verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, look at verse 2. Because there's a second fruit that we get from justification by faith. And that is access to God. Through whom we have obtained our introduction. How many of you have the translation that has access? Good. That's a better translation. I love the New American Standard. I don't have any idea. I, don't, I know why they did introduction, why they used it. I just don't like it. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, the word introduction that's used in the New American Standard literally means access, okay? Or it means admission. There's two pictures given to us here for us to consider. Most theologians, when they're, when they're working through a passage of Scripture, they'll do the word studies, and when they come to a word like access or introduction, and they begin to study the background of the words, words have movement, you know. They're forced to make a decision based upon their interpretation. One of the great things about being dumb like me is I can use that word and apply both of the definitions to it, okay? One of the definitions is this. In the secular world, it was the ushering in of someone into the very presence of royalty. One of the ways this word was used was that someone would open the door and allow someone to come in to the presence of majesty. That's why the word introduction was used by them. And gang, I like it. Because you see, you and I have immediate access, introduction, into the very presence of God. The other way that word was used was to refer to a ship that uh, realized a storm was coming. And they saw a harbor, a safe harbor. And that word would be access into the harbor for safekeeping from the storm. Now, gang, I like both of those definitions. I think both of those definitions apply. And I would say pick which one you want 
because both of them are pretty sweet to us, okay? Now, the way Paul uses it is that once it happens, it has abiding results. So he wants us to realize there's a present tense emphasis, but it's also permanent. You see, because now that I am a friend of God, I can come into his marvelous presence anytime, anywhere, with anything, and he protects me anytime. I, I don't know if you noticed out on the street, but Don put up the pictures of our graduating seniors. Did you see that? Isn't that awesome? We've never been able to do that. And I didn't see it. Apparently, you did it Sunday, last Sunday night or something. Um, and I didn't see it, but I was coming into work Monday morning. And as I was coming in, I saw all the pictures of those wonderful, wonderful kids. And let me tell you what I did. I, I pulled into the parking lot, and I turned off my key, my truck, and I just sat there. And as their name and picture popped up, I prayed for them by name. And then the next one. And you see, the beauty of access to God is even in a parking lot, in a pickup truck, looking at pictures, you have access to God anytime, anywhere, with anything, knowing that he hears and he protects. Gang, I don't have to go through anybody. Bam. I'm there. Every morning... When I get up and go into my study in my prayer closet, guess who beat me there? God, through Christ. One of the struggles that my son has in Macedonia, Macedonia is a, company, a country whose basic religious makeup is Macedonian Orthodox. I don't know if you know what you know about Orthodox. Uh, there's Greek Orthodox, there's German Orthodox, there's European Orthodox, all that. Um, they're, they're very Catholic in how they approach, uh, how they approach God, how they get to God. One of the struggles that, that they have is trying to help them understand that you can have a personal relationship with God. And then when you have a personal relationship with God, you can go into his presence directly. Because they've been taught in orthodoxy and Catholic the Catholic religions, I don't know why anybody would want to be a Catholic. I just tell you, I, you know, you may be, and if I've offended you, I apologize. I don't know why anybody would want to be Catholic. I don't know why anybody would want to be an Orthodox. Because let me tell you what they do. To get to God, they have to go through a priest. And in that country, I don't know about here, but in that country, the only way you can do that is by paying. So if you want to go to God, you've got to go to a priest and they have a set fee for that. In fact, they're all upset there because the country's very poor, and so they and they've raised the fees because the church church over there needs more money, and they're all upset because no one has any money. But the only way they can get to God is by going to a priest and offering money. I'd hate to live that way. When they go to church, they go to church twice a year. They don't come like this, and they don't they don't sing songs of praise. They, they don't hear a preacher preach or preacher put you to sleep or whatever like that. They, you know what they do? They come, and on this long table, there is a, uh, a row of candles. And so they come, and they light candles. 
to their family saint. Or they'll pray to a saint. Or they'll pray to Mary. And the whole idea about that religion is they really don't have access to God. They have to go through a mediator. They have to go through somebody else. And Paul says, no, no. Through whom we have obtained access through faith into this grace. Paul wants us to know that when you're justified by faith, not only do you have peace with God, God becomes your friend, God accepts you, but you have access to him immediately. You're in his presence. And gang, aren't you glad of that? Wouldn't you hate to know that you had to go through me to get to God? But God, through the sacrifice and the slaying of his son, knowing that we could not be at peace with him unless he killed his son, did that. And now we have access. People all over the world are screaming to get to God. And because I am, and hopefully you are his friend, because of the cross, we're immediately in his presence. The veil, that separation, is torn apart, top to bottom, by God, by the killing of his son on the cross, on the old rugged cross. And I am there immediately. And you are there immediately. And Paul says, I'm standing on this truth. What's the fruit? So what about justification? Well, it's more than going to heaven. First of all, you have peace from God. You have access to God. And then also in verse 2, we have the hope of God. We exalt in hope. Of the glory of God. Now, there's an element here that looks to that day, that future day, when we're all in his presence with all the saints glorifying him. But it's more than that. The word exalt means to brag. Now, it's not a pride thing, but it's a worship thing. And actually, the word exalt means to celebrate or to have jubilation. And Paul wants us to know that our hope is not a wish, but a reality. We're saved, we always will be saved from this moment when he saves you all the way through eternity. I will be boasting and I will be glorifying in the glory which belongs to Christ. Great things he has done. Now I want to close with something kind of personal. We'll pick this up next week and then move into the next few verses. But I I want to tell you something. I I believe that when you... um, When you give your heart to study and when you give your heart to try to somehow understand the scriptures, then God's truth has to move from your head down into what we would call the heart. In other words, there has to be a so what in everything that you read and you have to apply God's truths to your life, perhaps where you are, but God's truths to your heart. And I want to tell you what I learned this week, okay? I'm in a discussion with a friend of mine on the subject of worship, okay? Uh, We come from totally different perspectives. As you probably know, I'm not really a very good singer. And 
and the worst thing than me singing is me playing the piano while I sing, okay? So uh, his perspective is there, mine's not. Now, we believe the same thing, okay? But, but our perspectives are different. And as I studied the passage, let me tell you what I, I, this last phrase, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Let me tell you what I, I learned, I, and I know it's right. I wrote down this. I learned that until believers understand the theological implications of justification by faith, that, that so what that we've been talking about, genuine worship will be hindered. I wanted to say non-existent. I don't believe that. It'll be hindered. We all worship, and we know that all of our worship is imperfect on this side. We're just trying to get a little better as we go along, and we get to heaven. It will be perfect, Sean. It'll be awesome. Singing, playing. I might, I might play the piano up there. You know, I might be Billy Joel or something up there, okay? But one of the things I learned is until we get our theology right, and I think our theology is not being taught right in many of our churches today. Until we get our theology right, until we get our doctrine square, okay, genuine worship will be hindered. Until we understand what peace with God really means, not us to God, but God to us, which should radically alter your life. Until we understand what access into his presence really means, that somebody, Christ, opened the door. And a beggar now has access into the presence of a king with no dividing wall. And in my, in my access to the Father, the king, there's protection in my life. And until I understand what the hope of glory means, that I am secure from his point of view and accepted into his family, from his perspective, then worship in spirit and truth will be hindered. You know why? Because we get hung up on the wrong things. We'll get hung up on music or the style of music or the kind of music or we'll get hung up on the song or something like that. We will get hung up on the presentation of it. We'll misread it because there's something faulty in our heart, okay? And so let me tell you what I wrote here at the, my last sentence. Worship is the theological expression of exalting God, or it's not worship at all. I believe that's what Paul's trying to help us understand. We have peace from God's perspective. Why in the world? Would he call me his friend? If he only knew me, why would he call me his friend? But he knows me, and he still calls me his friend. And I can worship. Because of the cross, where God himself slayed his son, and he ripped apart the veil of separation, I can have a sinner, evil, unrighteous, like I am. His wrath is removed from me. And I can enter his presence immediately. I can worship. The hope of glory. That what he did, he did eternally. 
all in store for a greater day. I can worship. Gang, that's theological. That's theology. That's doctrine. And until we understand that, then what we're going to do is evaluate what we call our worship by a song or a style. And it's never been that. And God never intended it to be that. It's a theological expression of us understanding who God is. And I got to tell you, I needed to learn that this week. I really needed to learn that. I needed to know that God is my friend. I needed to know that in my pain, I can run into his presence. I can hug. I remember my little boy one time running in and, and so upset about something and falling down and grabbing my ankles and not letting go. I needed to learn this week that I could come into his presence, into daddy's presence, and hug his ankles and not let go. And I needed to know that at the end of it all, at the end of it all, it's going to be okay. You see, we need correct theology. We need it. And if we're going to worship correctly, we've got to study it. Amen. All right, now let me tell you what we're going to do next week. We're going to take another bite. We're going to move from this uh, uh, theological standing into our state. And we're going to see how God carries us through this tribulation process, building us that hope that lets us never to be ashamed to be who we are. Okay? Well, gang, that's all I got with time. My watch broke, so I don't